Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, back for another week of Enough About Me. Uh, last week was a big one with Alan Dershowitz, Christian Fourier, Brian Riccio, Harry Minahan. Uh, this week's going to be a little different. I think we're going to get a little more of the investigative Kirk Minahan. Uh, we're going to take a little look back today, and then we're going to take a little uh, look into the current state of uh, of a certain story that I have found interesting. I can't give away specifics at this point yet. Uh, let's just say I'm digging. I am digging. As I take a sip from my drink, uh, that my boss, Jeff Sotolano, complained about on Friday's conference call. He doesn't like my drinking during the podcast. My point was, this is what people do conversationally. If you're at lunch, I used to do it on the air. I'd have my breakfast. Uh, I would, you know, have my chalky milk, my cereal. This is what I do. It's what I will always do. Uh, and, you know, I, when I eat lunch now, I realize it's strange. So when I eat lunch, I don't drink a lot when I eat my lunch, which I thought I was a, I thought I was like a two bites and a sip guy. I think I'm like a seven, eight bite and a sip guy, which I did not. I didn't realize, but then I looked at my drink the last couple of times after lunch, and it's essentially full, and I'm not going to dump uh, a full drink, you know? I don't drink anything, so if I have a soda, that's what, that's my my vice uh, drinking, so it's not going to change, so deal with it. One of the things they talked about a lot when they brought me t- in this world now, it's podcasting, uh, potentially a live radio show, where it was away from the traditional sports talk format, was more investigative stuff, and the thing they always pointed to was the work we did on the Kevin Cullen story. So there are people listening now who have not listened <clears throat> before. Kevin Cullen uh, was, then wasn't, and now is a columnist at the Boston Globe. Um, and he was suspended for a period of time, which we'll get to, for uh, incorrectly, I think is what they came to, saying or inconclusively stating where he was at the marathon bombing. Uh, some factual inaccuracies. We'll get to the the Scott Allen, Brendan McCarthy, Joseph Kahn, uh, Globe uh, investigative look at Kevin Cullen themselves, which is just in- incredibly wrong. It's, wait till you get to the, when I get through everything, I read that part. You're just gonna laugh. It's so embarrassing. But anyway, <clears throat> Kevin Cullen uh, is somebody who I'll just give you a backstory on my end. He's a call. He was a columnist at the Globe, and the columnist in the metro section of the Globe is a big piece of real estate in Boston. Or was, not not really is anymore, but was for a long time. And famously, Mark, Mike Barnacle had that spot before he got popped uh, for plagiarism. And plagiarism is, is, is not a new thing, obviously, in the world of journalism. Uh, nor is uh, making up where you were or lying. You know, this is stuff that people have been doing forever. Fabulism has been going on forever. I actually think uh, a, 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 a six or eight episode series on different fabulists, whether it's Stephen Glass or Jason Blair or Kevin Cullen or Barnacle or even smaller things, papers we don't know about, every week or two you'll see something pop up. Yeah, maybe every month or so you'll see something pop up where they'll say, um, uh, this guy you know, in this paper in Texas has been making shit up for 15 years. Or somebody in Germany 
you know, it's crazy when, when you really dig down and start reading about it, the size and scope. And you do understand it intellectually. It's the easiest thing to do. You know, if you're so close to a story, like, you know, right now I'm working on something where we're close. We're close. And you'd love to be able to, uh, <clears throat> sorry, Jeff, you'd, you'd be able to, uh, you know, put a little fact in there. Just insert it in there. It fits nice and neat. You Bam, you've got your story. But that's not the case. You can't do that because I think, and especially in 2019, you'll eventually get busted. You're going to get fucked every single time. I think. Maybe some people get away with it. And by the way, Colin may argue in, in, in the Globe may have got away with it anyway. Still got his job. So anyway, Kevin Cullen is a guy, uh, and I'm going to kind of use three things as references here, uh, three main things. And a bunch of sound, which another test for Mark Moroso, see if he can pass it. We're going to put some sound in here as well when I call for it. But uh, my column from April 22nd of last year, as is, is we near the one-year anniversary, uh, a closer look at Kevin Cullen, the memorandum that Alan McCarthy and Khan sent to McGrory, uh, and then Cullen's own story that sort of kicked this whole thing off. We'll start there. <clears throat> you know, um, as I just said in my column, I always had doubts about Cullen. Cullen was a guy who things were always too neat. You know, they were they were just always too easy. And I can't say I, I, I was a big reader of his. I wasn't. Um, but when I did read them, and we'd have the Globe, you know, Curtis, my old producer Chris Curtis, would have uh, the Globe and the Herald laid out for us every day. And once in a while... You go through, you know, the paper. You go through the Globe. You get you by the, you know, and you kind of you're, you're pouring through the Metro section. Maybe there's a story that's going on that you find interesting, and you'll see the Cullen story. And there are times where I would turn to Jerry <clears throat> just to give you an idea. You know, the show would start at six. We'd be in there at five fifteen, five thirty, whatever, uh, reading stuff, kind of talking, trying to figure out what it's going to be. And I'd say to him, "Look at this. Look at this story from Cullen. Look at this. You believe this one?" And it was about somebody, some guy, his, some cop, some fireman, Sully, Fitzy, you know, blah, blah, blah. And we'd laugh and I'd say, there's just so much barnacle here. It's such, such bullshit. Um, I just didn't believe him. It just, it, it read uh, too clean for me, too neat. They were characters with, you know, uh, no last names, you know, dialogue that when these people would have dialogue with each other, the cops or the firemen, it's a kind of dialogue you'd read in like a, a, a best-selling book. Uh, with cops and firemen talking to each other. You know, it, it, it wasn't the way that real people communicate. Way too easy. Uh, and everyone was glorified, you know, like they were all, you know, great guys. And, uh, and, and Cullen was buddies with all of them. Cullen always knew the, the which led to the, the, the Cullen sort of mocking that we do. And I got all these tweets about Cullen as a TV guy, like the TV guy capsules. Please tweet some at me this week for the Cullenversary at Kirkman because they always make me laugh. That, you know, Cullen was buddies with the cops and the firemen and the bartender. And the bartender would say, oh, it's all right. It's the way Kevin is. Leave him alone, you know. And I thought, well, this doesn't really work for me. But I, because he was so insignificant in my life, really, I put him aside. I really did. Um, and, he, and Cullen would always cast himself as, you know, the tough guy. Uh, not afraid to fight for the truth. You know, the politicians hated him. Everyone was against him, but he was always butting heads against it. And it, In my own mind, I was already mocking it and sort of creating this sort of character in my head before any of this stuff even happened. I'll, give, I'll just give you an idea, okay? Like, um, uh, this is after the marathon column, which ran April 14th, 2000. Oh, I'm sorry. It's a couple of days before the marathon column, April 14th, 2018. April 11th, 2018, uh, Charles Austin of WBZ-TV died, okay? Um, and Cullen writes this part. Years ago, when Ronald Reagan was still president, so, well, I'll, you know, I'll just read it first, then we'll get to the questions. Okay. 
Years ago when Ronald Reagan was president and I still had black hair, I showed up at press conference at a press conference at the attorney general's office near the state house. As I was about to enter the room with all the cameras lined up, some guy barred me at the door. Too late, he said, looking me in the eye. You're too late. I looked over his shoulder. Reporters were mulling around. No one was at the podium. But it hasn't even started, I told the guy. He shook his head, folded his arms. Now, I was born at night, but I wasn't born in the dark. I knew what was going on. A few days earlier, I had written a story about some screw-up at the AG's office. It wasn't even that big of a deal. The story ran inside the paper. But some flunky in the AG's office decided to do to me what Seamus the Irish Setter used to do the roof of Mitt Romney's car. Across the room, I saw Charlie Austin watching the whole thing. Charlie worked for Channel 4, and I knew him pretty well from the street. <laughs> he was a good guy, a real reporter. So Charlie comes across the room and confronts the jerk from the AG's office and asks what the problem is. The jerk from the AG's office started fumbling about some lame excuse about being too late to get in, and Charlie starts asking other questions. The jerk from the AG's office says something about me being late and screwing up stuff and asking stupid questions. Yeah, Charlie said, but we know Kevin's a bleep, but he's our bleep. The jerk from the AG's office just stepped aside, and I walked in, high-fiving Charlie as I passed, and Charlie continued to give the jerk from the AG's office the evil eye. <laughs> yes! I love that stuff. I love it. So there's a couple of colored trademarks here, as I wrote. One, the nickname for the subject, which is a tool let us know he's buddies or close to whoever he writes about, which he does with the Richard family as well, which we'll get to. Marty for Martin Richard, Janie for Jane Richard. Uh, and another Colin fixture, you see that the government's against him. You know, they, he, his work is so important and, and so piss, it piss everyone off. It's somebody from the AG's office with a, with attempt to bar him from entering a press conference. And then the friend comes in to saves the day. But at the same time, the friend like, yeah, you know, oh, this Colin man, he's, we got to deal with him too, man. He's a ball breaker, but he's our guy. You know, you fuck with him. You fuck with us. That whole attitude. Now, this is a random column. One of, I don't know, 5,000 Colin's written, 3,000. You pick the number. Uh, it might be true. I doubt it, but it may be true. If I worked at the Globe, my assignment was to check Colin's work. You know, they should have fact checkers at these papers. I'd have a few questions. What was the story you wrote that pissed off the AG's office? There's one. What was the name of the jerk who wouldn't let you into the press conference? Who was the attorney general at the time? You say the Reagan year. What year? What was this press conference? What was it about? Uh, is there any other person at the press conference that can verify that you were, in fact, barred from entering? Anyone else hear it? Why wouldn't you write about that incident if it, in fact, happened? Did anyone else see Austin confront the jerk at the AG's office? I'll bet my life nobody asked Colin any of these questions. Any of them. Now, when you allow people to get away with that, you know, that is called enabling. And for years and 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 years, Kevin Cullen was uh, enabled by people at the Globe. And he would go on speaking tours and he'd tell his stories and he'd talk about how he wanted to be a firefighter and his trips to Ireland and how he got in the middle of uh, wars with the IRA and about how he was playing the fucking tin whistle with some famous musician in Ireland. And then he'd come back to Boston and fight Whitey Bulger and he'd be in a battle and this and that and this and that. And he always wanted to seem like he was part of the city's fabric. You know, he was Kevin Cullen. So... When the biggest story, you know, I mean, I don't want to rank the marathon bombing. I mean, wherever it ranks in the history of the city, clearly it's one of the two or three biggest stories ever in the city, I think, you know, the last hundred years, say. My guess is that we'll we'll get to it, but I I think you know where I'm going. So uh, I wrote this, I guess maybe 18 months ago before the show one morning, and I I turned to Jerry Thomas Law, the barnacle, uh, I filed that away, you know. Uh, until Colin decided to take Twitter to call the EI 
shit all over us. He kind of got in the middle of this battle we were having with the Globe. Uh, made a bunch of accusations with zero proof, of course. Um, and at that point, I said, well, if he's going to do that to us and try and get us in trouble publicly, let's start paying attention to what this, this fucking guy is writing. Right? Let's just get to work here. Didn't take long. Uh, Curtis uh, put this story in front of me. Um, April 14th, 2018. Titled, Five Years Later, We Feel the Grief Like a Sixth Sense. Cullen wrote about the upcoming five-year anniversary of the bombing. I read it before the show on that Monday, that would be Patriots Day last year. And knew, I knew, I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to think that even if I didn't wasn't hyper-focused on this guy, and I wasn't particularly, you know, interested in it, didn't have a rooting way one way or another, or didn't care that that red lights or flags or whatever the fuck went out, would go off in my head. Uh, here it is. <clears throat> I'm just starting. Starting. Uh, uh, has it really been five years? He wrote. I'm starting at the beginning of the Kevin Collins story. Sometimes it feels like a million years and a million miles away, and then something will happen. I'll see a survivor on TV or on the sidewalk in the North End or Adams Village, Jesus, and it feels just like yesterday. I'm going to try and read this without commenting while I read it, the best I can. I happened upon a house fire recently in Mattapan, and the smell reminded me of Boylston Street five years ago when so many lost their lives and their limbs and their sense of security. I can smell Patriot's Day 2013. I can hear it. God, can I hear it whenever multiple fire engines or ambulances are racing to a scene. I can taste it when I'm around a campfire and embers create a certain sensation. I can see it when I bump into survivors, which happens with more regularity than I ever could have imagined. And I can touch it when I grab those survivors' hands or their shoulders. Now, there were people after this who still tried to claim that Cullen was ambiguous about where he was when this happened, which, of course, is bullshit. Um, r- listen to those paragraphs again and, and, and try and convince me that someone uh, is writing that who doesn't want you to believe they were at the scene. Smell it, taste it, touch it. So my question was after that to Curtis was, I don't remember, and I re- we read a lot at the, at the show, you know, obviously we covered it a lot, John, Jerry, and I, about the marathon bombing. I don't remember Kevin Cullen ever writing he was there. We looked the day after. There was no column that claimed he was there. So my question was really just this. Was Cullen present at the bombing? I had never read he was. I could have missed it. <clears throat> so we went back and read his story the day after the bombing in 2013. Uh, and here's some of what we found. This is from the day after the bombing again. Uh, and so it was alternately poignant and horrifying to watch as first responders frantically pulled metal barriers and the flags of so many different countries down in the Boylston Street in a desperate rush to get the dead and the injured on the sidewalk. After the initial explosion, runners instinctively craned their necks toward the blast site. Then 12 seconds later, a second explosion. Further up Boylston, it was pandemonium. I saw an older runner wearing high-rise pink socks about to cross the finish line. He was knocked to the ground by a uh, photographer running up Boylston Street toward the second explosion. In an instant... So many lives changed. Some ended. The telephone's lines burned. Everyone was trying to figure out who and why. Now, Cullen never writes, you know, as I've reported, he was ever actually there at the scene, but he leads uh, any reasonable person in that direction. He saw an older runner. He watched first responders pull metal barriers. Right away, I, I could just tell you, my, my instant reaction wasn't there. Um, 
<clears throat> a guy like Cullen would never leave that detail out. That that was my my tell. His ego's too big. His his sense of desire is too important to be the middle of a story that he would tell you everything about him, everything he did that day, which you'd want to read too, by the way. Uh, he put himself in the middle, so he did the best he could to dance around and hope no one called him out. And he knew his own paper, The Globe, didn't care enough about the truth, maybe A, or B, uh, didn't want to know the truth, or C, and I'll, tr- I'll defend The Globe. One second, this, this studio goes from 3 degrees to 300 degrees. It's going to be 3,000 degrees again in a second. Uh, you know, I think he, there's a chance that he, he wanted to believe, uh, I'm sorry, that, that the Globe people were legitimately in the middle of this chaos too busy to fact check. Now, that will not pass as we look later on. We found out they just didn't fact check at all. Um, so, you know, right away, Curtis and I started digging, you know, because Jerry just, I don't know, Jerry didn't, I don't know what he was doing. He's busy, but so Curtis and I said, this is the kind of stuff we like to do. We've done it in the past. Let's dig in here on this guy because we knew, we knew that there was at least a whiff of bullshit in the air. Now, later that morning, the show account received a tweet um, from someone who had heard Cullen on Bob Ryan's podcast. And about 59 minutes in, here's Moroso's first test, Ryan asked Cullen if he'd seen the movie Patriot's Day, the 2016 movie about the bombing. Cullen instantly made the answer about his own post-marathon experience. Did you see the movie? Did you want to see I, the movie? I didn't want to see the movie. Um, I remember talking to a number of firefighters I know and a couple of EMT guys, Brian Promodaro, who's a one of the lieutenants on the Boston EMS, and he just, these are people who have been treated for post-traumatic stress for stuff that they went through, and they had no interest in seeing the movie. And I must say that the, like a month after the bombing, I was completely screwed up myself. I just uh, had, had, was not taking care of myself, was not eating right, was not, was, was drinking too much, was not getting proper exercise and sleep. And I, it, I think it was almost like secondhand PTS. I just was, Dealing with so many people who have been traumatized, it really affected me. I remember like crying at night and stuff after talking to people, and and I just remembering that mm-hmm. stuff. I said, "There's no way I want to see a movie. I, I don't want to see a Hollywood treatment of this." Again, I mean, is that is that is that it does, again? Well, I'll just ask the questions. Does that sound like a human being who wasn't at the marathon bombing, or at least claiming not to be at the marathon bombing? Uh. And he only gets in the PTS, as he calls it, after describing the terrible months of the marathon for rescue workers who were actually at the bombing. This guy can't help himself. So Curtis and I keep digging and digging and digging. Uh, he was happy to speak to the media right after the bombing. Uh, the day after the bombing, he quote, quoted this saying, I was probably like a mile away from the scene, but I kind of heard it. And my response says, a, 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 a mile away? Like a mile away? Kind of heard it? Where are you exactly? Who could hear it a mile away? We talked to people who are a mile away, which is, you know, I've run the marathon. That's, you know, about Fenway. Um, the runners who were stopped at, at the 20 couldn't hear anything. You can't hear anything a mile away in Boston on Marathon Monday. I mean, come on. This is stupid. It's a fucking baseball game going on right there. Um, no one at Fenway has ever claimed to hear it, of course. Ever. Not once. <clears throat> Just Colin, who's probably a mile away and kind of heard it. Let's stay, let's focus on his location here. Let's continue to do that. So so Chris and I are now, we hear that, um, and we say, okay, now it's time, probably time to talk to this guy. We're in the studio after the show Tuesday, 
Uh, I'm sorry, Thursday. Happened Monday. By Thursday, we're kind of, we know we're on to something here, and we're going to keep digging. And it's still just me and Curtis, essentially, our operation. Um, some help from some people on social media, I guess, but it's really just me and Chris digging in, asking around. Chris is doing a great job finding sound. Uh, we're getting tweets from people. Go listen to this. We're doing Google searches. And it's just, it, you know, he was happy to, to talk about this endlessly after the uh, bombings. Um, we'll get back to the uh, uh, to, to, to the timeline stuff here in a second. Uh, that Thursday morning, uh, I decided to call Colin during a commercial and try and get some answers. Um, he picked up after a couple of rings. I identified myself. And we had this brief conversation. Uh, I asked him, were you present when the bombs went off at the finish line? Cullen, was I ever at the scene? Were you there when it happened? No. I got there a few hours later. I can't talk right now. Um, I said, would you like to tell me about your relationship with Sean O'Brien, who's a firefighter? We'll get more on that later. Cullen said no, and he hung up. Uh, I tried calling him several times in the couple of days after. He never answered my calls, so we did we don't really have an idea where he was. He'll never say it. My guess is he was his house, um, which I think is in Hingham. He mentions uh, in his column the day after the bombing in another book how he watched in awe of the coverage from Lisa Hughes at the finish line. So was he watching TV all day then? I mean, how could he watch Hughes if he at the finish line? Was he a mile away? The Globe isn't a mile away. Morrissey Boulevard, where they were at the time, was four miles away. Again, questions that should have been asked never were. And um, in the day after the in that day after the column, he writes, uh, in, in that day after column, the day after the uh, marathon bomb, he writes this about the Richard family. This is the day after 2013 again, not the five years later column. I went on Monday night and bumped into some firefighters. It's amazing. He always bumps into the firefighters, he knows. They said one of the dead was an eight-year-old boy from Dorchester who got out to hug his dad after he crossed the finish line. The dad walked on. The boy went back to the sidewalk to join his mom and sister. And then the bomb went off. The boy was killed. Okay. So let's pick through that, which is, to me, an incredible, incredible thing to write when you think about it. So, <clears throat> so he's out in Boston on Monday night again. What, you know, we don't know what time. We don't know where. He bumped into some firefighters he knew. He went out Monday night. We, we don't know, again, we're not sure where that walk was. He has this habit of bumping into firefighters, cops, and uh, bartenders. He was luckily bumped into some firefighters he knew uh, the day after the marathon bombing, where I'm sure they had you know, nothing else to do. Um, of course, he's talking about Martin Richard, who was killed in the bombing. Bill Richard did not run in the marathon. Um, this hasn't been allowed for years, years, years. I've run the Boston Marathon, of course. And, you know, I, I as a fact checker, if I'm, I'm saying this doesn't make sense. But Kevin wanted uh, that story to be true, of course. He wanted the, not to be true, but he wanted to be able to write this poignant, passionate thing. So people on Twitter and people commenting and people he run into at these dinners could say, oh, you really gave us such a powerful, true sense of what the marathon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You're the real hero. Thank you for doing that. Not the firefighters, not the cops. Cull, thank you for making this happen. Um, if he had spent a minute of his life at the finish line, he would have known this. Uh, you know, the idea that someone's gonna, a kid's going to pop over that finish line, hug their dad, and then go back is, first of all, runners going through is fucking insane. It never, it never happens. Um, Colin expands on this with the BBC, by the way, another interview. I actually know the father. Um, this is the eight-year-old boy, Kevin. Yes. The father, his name is Bill Richards. He's a lovely guy. Uh, he's from Dorchester, a section of Boston, which is very Irish-American. 
<laughs> he lives right around the corner from the Great Air Pub that hosted Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton and even Bertie Ahern. And um, Bill Richards ran the race today. And when he finished the race, his young son left the sidewalk. <clears throat> he went out into Boylston Street and hugged his dad. And then he went back onto the sidewalk, and his father walked on to register his time. And the bomb exploded. The boy was killed. Not to register your time at all, by the way. There's a chip on your shoe that takes care of that. Uh, this is the biggest race in the world. Like, there's no, there's not a, you know, a 5K in fucking, uh, you know, Tisconsi of Wyoming or something. Uh, there's no way a runner finishes a race, uh, comes back out. Y- y- they move you away. The minute you finish the Boston Marathon, the minute you finish the Boston Marathon, the minute the second... They're pushing you forward. You're not allowed to go back. You're done. People are finishing. They're moving you forward. You're getting your you know, the thing you put over you. You're getting your water. You're getting your metal. You're done. And they move you way down the street. I mean, you go way down uh, a sit, the, the whole block. You go all the way down Boylston, essentially. And then you're done. Like it's, 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 The idea that he stopped, turned around to hug his son, went through the finish line again, would have never happened ever. I'm not expecting you guys listening to necessarily know that. But, uh, you know, I'm, ex- I'm expecting Kevin Cullen A to know that, which probably does anyway. I'm expecting some fact checker to know that. I'm expecting somebody to know that. Especially, you know, you're dealing with a guy whose son died. And by the way, he didn't run the race. He didn't run the marathon. So, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's, of course, Cullen's other thing is he knows him. He's friends with Bill Richard. You know, he knows him. He knows him. He knows him. He knows him. It's, it's you know, he knows every cop, firefighter, union rep, politician. Guy in the street, guy who guy who's the bookie, everyone knows everyone, and now he's in the middle of this story that's the biggest story ever, and he can't fucking put himself in the middle of it, and I guarantee you it was driving him bananas. So we hear that sound, and we think, you know, this this is just none of this is adding up, none of this is making sense, you know, none of this is 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 anywhere close to factual. I'm thinking this guy's just this guy's making this shit up. He clearly wasn't there. <clears throat> so, um, so he, then his next stop with the BBC was this, and uh, the daughter, the girl, um, my friend, the firefighter Sean, picked her up, and he carried her to an ambulance, and um, he said that uh, when he put her down, he realized her leg was missing. And he went back to the scene, and he told me he crawled on his legs, his hands and his knees, trying to find her leg, her leg, and he couldn't find it. So now we have gone from this is a big this is a big jump now, uh, my listeners. This is a big jump. We are going from the world of was he at the scene? Was he not at the scene? Um, what is he smelling, tasting here? We are now. In pure fiction land, we have now arrived at the point where he is just making shit up indisputably. Um, He tells us about the firefighter who rescued Jane Richard. I just got off the phone not long ago with a young firefighter I'm very concerned about. He's a young kid. He's a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. And he told me what he saw today was worse than anything he ever saw in a war zone. He carried a young girl who had a brother killed at the scene. I actually know the father. He just ran the race today. And the daughter of the girl, my friend Sean, the firefighter, picked her up. And he carried her to an ambulance. And he said when he put her down, he realized her leg was missing. 
And he went back to the scene and told me he crawled on his legs and hands and knees trying to find her leg and he couldn't find it. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> you know, uh, I understand that it sucks that you weren't there. Like, I do get that. And I remember hearing this sound. This is the sound that I remember hearing the most. And I heard it and I thought, this guy just is 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 completely lost his mind. Like, he is so badly wanting to be a character in this play, which is weird anyway. You realize that people have died, their limbs have been... The poor Richard family's lives are ruined, and Jeff Bowman, and Crystal Campbell, and the uh, hundreds of people who've lost limbs and have gone through real hell every single day. This guy wants to pretend to be part of it, not actually be part of it, pretend to be part of it. I think so people will admire him and have pity for him. Is so fucked up. It's crazy. So anyway, the Sean Cullen's referring to is Sean O'Brien, a veteran Dorchester firefighter who was at the scene and did talk to Cullen the day after the bombing. O'Brien, though, said he never told Cullen he carried Jane Richard anywhere. <clears throat> I, can, I can confirm that. We talked to O'Brien. He said he didn't really know Cullen at all. He talked to him once or twice and didn't consider him a friend, didn't really know him. Uh, and that was it. Didn't have a relationship with him. Uh, Matt Patterson, a Lynn firefighter who was off duty that day, carried Jane Richard. I spoke to Patterson that week, and he wanted no credit or praise for what he did. It was his job, and I could tell he had no desire really to go over the events of that day, and who would want to? He told me he never heard of Cullen until, the, until we started talking about the story, and then never talked to him. What's also odd about this is if you did a simple Google search, uh, you'd find out that Patterson was the man who would carry Jane Richard. Neck and other story, BZ. Uh, New York Daily News, the city of Lynn honored him in May of 2013. How could Cullen or the Globe not correct this? I mean, we now know that this is fiction. So there it is. I mean, Cullen was either given totally false information from an unknown firefighter named Sean or wanted to tell a gripping cinematic story to please the BBC about his friend Bill Richard and his friend Sean the firefighter. The image of that heroic firefighter crawling on his hands and knees in the middle of chaos to recover the limb of a child was too tempting for Cullen to pass on, I guess, regardless of truth. Now, when I spoke to Patterson, he told me right away something that, because I'm a fucking idiot, I should have realized as well, it would be virtually impossible for anyone with any rescue history to not know right away that someone had lost a limb. In Cullen's story, Sean the firefighter doesn't realize this until he puts Jane Richard down in the ambulance. Now, of course, you think about the amount of blood that's going on, and also a leg is missing. You know, you would know right away. The blood must have been incredible. And, 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 and uh, Patterson... You know, just didn't didn't really want to revisit. He really didn't. He was not emotional. He was very nice, but he just said, "I just it's you know it's just something I don't." He didn't did, didn't want to talk about. He just didn't, and I get it. But his point was, if you've had any experience at all in rescue, you know it's it's bullshit. Uh, on April twentieth, two thousand thirteen, Cohen writes about the bombings for the Irish Times, and once again, guess who comes back? Sean the firefighter. Now, miraculously, the storyline about Jane Richard is gone. Now Sean kneels over the body of Martin Richard, um, which may in fact be true. Uh, Brian wouldn't discuss that with me when we talked last week. Colin writes about a discussion he had with Sean about finding Martin Richard. When I looked at young Marty, Sean told me, I knew he was gone. This rugged firefighter who was muscular and imposing stopped to regain his composure. His lower lip quivered, and a tear fell from my eye and smudged my notebook. Sean O'Brien told me he has no memory of ever seeing Cullen cry in front of him. 
Cohen refers to him as his friend Sean in several places, but O'Brien says they met a few times right after the bombing. That was really it. He hadn't spoken to Cullen in years. So you have sort of that that same thing again where Cullen has inserted himself into it and has, and has portrayed Sean O'Brien, who I'm sure is a good, seems like a very nice, decent guy, a good firefighter, I'm sure, casts him as this rugged firefighter his lip quivering, and calling himself part of the story. He knows what a guy like that's going through. Can't help but cry on his notebook for, <clears throat> uh, uh, you know, total fabrication. They just, it just never happened. <sighs> um, you know, obviously I'm biased on this, you know, clearly. You know, I, there's no question that my bias on this, I, I tried to make it obvious from the start that Globe and I have had issues for a long time. Um, but I went at this investigated it as soberly as I could. And if I found out or thought that Cullen was telling the truth, I would have said, hey, the guy's telling the truth. Let's move on. Trust me when I tell you. We've looked at stuff at the Globe before. We've said, yep, nope, there's nothing there. Moving on. Uh, But this one, from the second we started digging in, was absolutely so clear. There there was no way we couldn't. uh, We couldn't do this. It just just didn't make sense. Um, and, and, And so Cullen was... We'll get we'll get to the Cullen uh, we'll get to the Cullen stuff the 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 the, the after of, of all this investigation in a second you know how the Globe handled it how we handled it what it led to and all that but let me just wrap up how I wrapped up the column as well um, the the five year anniversary just listen to this and tell me if this passes uh, the test if you believe it. Uh, or is it the work of someone who wants things to be true? Someone who wanted to be close to firefighters, wanted you to think he was friends with people who earn respect and compassion, people who have gone through tragedy and probably can't comprehend why someone wanted to uh, sort of pretend he was part of it too. Pretend for a moment you work for the Boston Globe, okay? And your job is to make sure everything Kevin Cullen writes is accurate. How many questions would you have after this? Here's Cullen. A few months ago, I was driving down Galavan Boulevard on the way to the pub to talk to a man about a horse. That's obviously a joke, I guess. I don't know. As I was turning up Adams Street, I spied Jane Richards standing on the sidewalk waiting to cross. She probably just left her part-time job at College Hype where the great Jack Doherty gave her a few hours of work here and there. It's buddy Jack Doherty. Jane lost her leg that day, and she lost her brother Martin, who at eight years old uh, was a year younger than she was. Since the bombing, Jane has become my talisman. A few months after the bombing, she posed wearing a tiger leg, the prosthesis, they would let her run, if not make a resemblance of the Irish step dancer. She was a few weeks, uh, she was before a couple of losers decided to put a bomb behind her and her siblings. I remember seeing that photo and smiling for the first time in weeks. Jamie, I called out through my window. It startled her, and she turned in my direction without knowing who it was. She smiled and waved enthusiastically. I parked in the old Dorchester Post parking lot, and as soon as I turned the engine off for reasons I can't completely explain, I began to weep. Now, again, <laughs> anybody believe him? This is a guy who, you know, first of all, he says Jane Richards is talented. his good luck charm. He's just driving around one day, just just driving around, and runs into her and waves to her. He knows Jack Doherty, you got her the job. And she's, he's part of the mix. You know, he knows the dad. And, you know, uh, he started crying in the parking lot. He's a big crier. He started crying in the parking lot. It's just, uh, to me, like, my biggest takeaway, too, was I, this guy is just has fucking real issues, one. And two, the way he just used the Richard family and other victims and firefighters is just characters in his mind to get people to feel bad for him and to admire him and to think he's this great journalist when he wasn't there. He wasn't part of it. And you know what? If he had said, and I've said this before, 
if it's hard to believe, I think now in 2019, as we get closer to the six year anniversary of this, nobody really gave a shit about the mass Boston Marathon before 2013. I remember being on the show that morning uh, of the bombing and we did like a segment, a half a segment where we just made fun of the marathon and read the Globe preview and said, who gives a shit about the stupid fucking thing? And then everything changed. The bombs went off and it became such a huge, massive part of the city for all the different reasons that it was before. And it will always be that now. Um, uh, <clears throat> and if Kevin Cohen had just said, you know what, it wasn't, I wasn't there. Why would I have been there? You know, nobody expected anything to happen. Nobody really cared about the marathon. I got in there two hours late. I did some interviews and now I'm going to write some stories about it. People have said, you know, great. Nobody thinks you should have been there. But he couldn't live with that. And that's ultimately what brought him to where he got. So it happens and obviously becomes this big story. You know, big, big, big story locally. Big story nationally, too. People start weighing in on it. Sort of the latest thing, this Globe columnist, the Boston Globe, this, uh, you know, the Boston Marathon, the bombings, lies, deception. Was he there? Wasn't he there? So the Globe eventually decides to suspend him um, on a Friday night. Uh, in the middle of the summer, they give him a suspension. But let me just give you the so the so uh, the other obvious question is before we get to the punishment for Colin. The obvious question is: first thought you have is like anything else when somebody gets busted for drunk driving. Um, you know, you say, well, that's not the only time they've done that. I mean, intellectually, in that movie Shattered Glass, the 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 movie about Stephen Glass, um, Chuck Lane, who's his editor, turns to a coworker of Stephen Glass's who's fighting for him after he gets busted for his first story, and he basically says to her, like, we, we, you know, we're smart. You're a smart person. So am I. Like, we don't really both believe this is the only time he ever did this, right? Because when he did it, with it comes praise and applause and adulation. Everyone thinks you're great. How'd you find the story? Boy, you really dig in. You know, intellectually, you can't believe that Kevin Cullen in 2013 started fabricating locations or things or stuff, right? I don't believe that. I mean, I just gave you a Charlie Austin example that, you know, I have eight questions about without knowing any answers. Austin, of course, by the way, if I didn't mention, is dead. So, you know, if we're going back to the beginning, so, you know, nobody could talk to Charlie Austin about it. So the Globe decides to do an internal investigation. You know, like, you know, God forbid they just, they, they find, you know, people who aren't uh, affiliated with the paper at all. They have people with ties to the Globe, people who used to work at the Globe. As opposed to saying, we're going to have an independent organization look at this thoroughly and come back to us with a conclusion. They didn't do that. They had guys who have worked for the Globe and written for the Globe and have connections with the Globe. Um, <clears throat> they've worked with Cullen. They've been on, on, on panels with Cullen. So you knew that was going to happen. So on May 31st, they did a review of Kevin Cullen's columns from 2012 to 2018. Um, this, to me, is in its own way unbelievable. As unbelievable as the Cullen stuff. It really shows, I think... Um, if, well, if somebody that they didn't dislike had come out with this, whether it was the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, even the Boston Herald, I think, but it was me, not the show me, Kirk Minahan, who did this, and the Globe couldn't stomach that. So they had to go this way. Uh, we reviewed 100 columns written by Ke- this is Scott Allen, uh, Brendan McCarthy, and Joseph Kahn, who never got back to me, by the way, uh, reached out to Brian McGro- uh, wrote back to Brian McGrory the, the results of their investigation. Review 100 columns written by Kevin Cullen, contacting primary sources, checking facts, and when available, reading other media coverage of the same events. 
We did find five small errors of fact. The name is spelled here, a detail wrong there. But far more commonly, commonly, people praise Kevin's accuracy, and in many cases, his willingness to call back to confirm details. We found no evidence that Colin made up sources of information. In fact, only one of the scores of people we contacted complained that quotes attributed to him were not entirely accurate. That person, the VFW administrator, quoted in, hey, here's a crazy idea, said his quotes were cut off, apparently for the purposes of the article. They also complained that Colin got the... Uh, Post price for a, a Papsu ribbon wrong. It's a dollar twenty-five, not a dollar. But he agreed the column was generally accurate. He also liked the column. Anyway, uh, we did find evidence uh, that on occasion, Colin was not clear with the readers about the source of information. Sometimes providing no attribution or scenes or dialogue. A relatively common practice among columnists who employ a narrative style. Ooh. Uh, okay, red flag number one. I forget the other first. So. A relatively common practice among columnists who employ a narrative style is to be uh, unclear uh, about sources of information, sometimes providing no attribution for scenes and dialogue at all. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, in Bonds Unbroken, the Delivery from the Ashes, uh, he recounts a gripping discussion as though he were a witness, but Colin's primary sources for the story did not remember Colin being present. While not, in that, not necessarily inaccurate, Cullen's vivid retelling may give readers the false impression the dialogue is exactly true rather than Cullen repeating someone else's best recollection of what happened. So so what happened in that story was, and I've read it, is if you read it, you absolutely, anybody with a brain in their fucking head would, would come to the conclusion that Cullen acted like he was there. But, you know, it, it's, 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 it's not part of the narrative style. His vivid retelling uh, gave me the false impression, I would say, that the dialogue is exactly true. So the way they're doing it is just saying, yep, he bullshitted about this one, but we like him and we hate uh, Kirk Minahan, so we're going to make it look that way. In another column, the one I just referenced, Charlie Austin was the nicest guy in the competitive business. Colin related a personal anecdote so vague that the commentators on WEEI AM, which is, of course, wrong, questioned whether it happened. Colin claimed that back when Ronald Reagan was still president, a state official blocked him from attending uh, an attorney general's press conference, but Austin had persuaded the official to let Cullen in. Cullen believes the press conference in question was in 1984 when Frank Bellotti was attorney general, but he couldn't remember the topic and acknowledge he never complained about his mistreatment by the aide. And since Charles Austin is deceased and Austin's never, and Cullen never knew the, since Charles Austin is deceased and Cullen never knew the aide's name, there's virtually no way to verify the story. Oh, well, all right, good. We're done here. My hand, our hands are clean. Boof, what are you going to do? We can't verify it. Like this, this is like, and they act like it's not a big deal. They almost act like it's insulting that we have issues with it at all. It's, it's, it's fucking crazy. It's so crazy. But I love it. I do. I love shit like this. But for every criticism, there were many more people who praised Kevin for going above and beyond the call of duty. Championing the little guy when other journalists wouldn't. Darby O'Brien of Holyoke said the bully-inducing suicide of Phoebe Prince was being swept under the rug until Kevin wrote a column about it. The case became a national call to arms against bullying. Many of the people uh, we talked to were aware that Kevin had been placed on leave and they were eager to defend him against EI's attacks, offering other people we could contact for character references. I love Kevin Collins, said Tony Norton, before vigorously slamming the Kirk and Callahan show for criticizing him. These guys would come after Kevin regardless of the facts, an injured rugby player, Dr. Stephen Durant, an MGH psychologist, quoted in the 2016 column, problems none, zero. It was done professionally with affection on Kevin's part. So so this now becomes where I, I, I can't speak for Brian McGorry. I don't really know him very well. I don't particularly care for him, nor does he for me. 
He's the editor of the Globe. The Marty Blake of the Boston Globe. Um, he, um, he, I would think, if you're running a newspaper, would say, okay, Kevin Cullen, this is, again, maybe I just don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So walk me through it if you guys would too. I would think these are real whether you like me, hate me. These are real serious issues that hurt the paper's reputation. Um, you know, guys, uh, you know, who, writers who really were, if I was a writer who covered the marathon coverage, like Steve Silva even, who did the video um, of the bombing, ran, after, ran toward the bombs. Um, or other writers who were really there every day writing it. I'd be so fucking insulted and angry at this guy, who, by the way, is like tried to jump on the, 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 the Pulitzer board on the pretends he's part of the group coverage as well of it, by the way, in his bio, if you look at his Globe bio, which he wasn't. Um, I'd be so insulted. I, I would have gone to McGorry and been like, fuck this guy. Let's, let's, let's take the hardest look possible at him. We're journalists too. We always want to check the facts. We always want to examine things. We want to doubt politicians when they lie. We want to doubt athletes when they lie. We want to doubt this guy, this guy, this guy. We're looking for bullshit all the time. When they lie, we're here to find the truth. We're here to make people uncomfortable. Let's treat this guy like he's one of our subjects. Let's make this guy as uncomfortable as possible. And if he passes the test, we welcome him back. If he's full of shit, he's done. But instead, they send these three flunkies out to do a story that's basically to shit on us. It's like, I'm not even, it's, I, I don't care. They can write whatever they want, but it's so fucked up. It's nuts. Um, much of EEI's criticism of Cohen's work centered on two issues, quoting people who are identified either by first name only or none at all and relating anecdotes without providing a source for the information. To determine how common these practices are, we reviewed all 105 Cohen columns from 2016 for incomplete sourcing a separate undertaking from the review of the 100 columns discussed above in the memo. We found five instances all year, so they just pick out 2016, I guess is random, where Cullen, uh, which Cullen did either one. To be clear, we found numerous cases in which Cullen did not identify peripheral characters in his columns or quote the people describing the actions of other unnamed individuals. But these are common journalistic practices and not a cause for concern. Uh, I'm not sure I agree with that, but okay. However, failing to fully identify a major source in the story is a potentially significant issue because it prevents the reader from knowing who is providing the information. Globe reporters employ unnamed sources only in special circumstance, such as when revealing the source's name would threaten the source's well-being. Twice in 2016, Kevin leaned on unnamed or first-name-only sources to tell important parts of the story. The stories may be entirely accurate, but without names attached, readers have no way to know if the source is fair or reliable. And no one is publicly accountable for the information. It's strange. Now it's fucking freezing again here. Give me a second. For my life to be over, will it be yes or will it be sorry? Alright, we're back. Twice in 2016. There you go. So, for example... Oh, this is good. This is a good one. This is the one that we... we t- in going back and doing this is it's like I'm gonna do this every year because I just this is like you know this is like bringing back the greatest hits once a year. I am enjoying this thoroughly because this is madness. Uh, for example, with MS13 history is repeating itself. Kevin extensively quotes an East Boston bodega operator without naming him. Everything attributed to the bodega operator may be accurate, but it's hard for anyone to judge the reliability of the information without going to Maverick Square to find him. <laughs> this is. This is the stuff that drives me nuts! 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 Oh my god! So, so let's, 
Let's do this again. They sent three people, Scott Allen, Brendan McCarthy, and Joseph Kahn, three people, to investigate all of Cohen's work. They extensively quote an East Boston bodega operator. I'm sorry, I forget his name. Kevin Cohen mentions his name in the column. There's like three or four bodegas in East Boston. From where the globe is to East Boston was like three or four miles. And none of those three guys could fucking trek to Maverick Square to try and find him. That's exactly the assignment they were given by McGorry. In a perfect world where McGorry actually wanted to find out the truth. That's exactly what they're supposed to do. Take the fucking Uber for three miles, walk around, ask some questions, and, 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 and be done. But my guess is they don't want to ask those questions because they know the answers. It is insane. That is the craziest paragraph ever written in the history of the world. It's nuttier than the fucking Joe Haggerty story in Montreal. It's crazier than anything else I've ever read in my life. It is fucking insanity. I mean, wrap your head around that just one more time. Everything attributed to the bodega operator may be accurate, but it's hard for anyone to judge the reliability of the information without going to Maverick Square to find him. It would take you an hour round trip and you'd be done. An hour. By the way, Curtis did it. Couldn't find anybody. Couldn't find that person. That is the that is the the, the, the whack whack wackiest thing of all time. It's so fucked up. Oh, one second. I can relax for a second. I gotta get, I go get, I get this. I'm gonna sing some Roy Orbison to relax me. My dad's favorite singer, the late great Peter Minahan, dead two years on May 4th. Uh, what should I do? A candy colored clown they call the Sandman tiptoes through my room every night. And just to make this start us, then the whisper, go to sleep, everything is all right. I close my eyes, and I drift away into magic night. I softly say a silent prayer, like dreamers do, when I fall asleep and dream. My dreams of you, in dreams I walk with you, in dreams I talk to you. All right, that's better. I'm a little more relaxed now. I'm about to have a, I was about to have a heart attack. This stuff drives me so fucking bonkers. Likewise, in Strength Beyond Horror, Kevin relates the story of Catherine, who was raised by nuns in degrading circumstances without providing her last name. A person quoted by name in the column knew who Catherine, uh, who knew Catherine, said she did not want her full name used publicly, so Kevin was protecting her identity. But Colin does not explain why he's not fully identified her, leaving the reader to wonder. We also identified three columns in which it's difficult uh, to determine the source of Kevin's anecdote. In new name, sign, same mind-numbing bureaucracy, Kevin describes writing a story many years before about a shooting in the old colony projects as well as a stabbing in the... Uh, Orchard Park projects they wrote about two days later. We can't locate any Globe piece going back to 1980 with a Cullen byline or tagline that mentions old calling the shooting. We did, though, find a 1988 story about a search for a murder suspect in which Cullen described as the Orchard Park housing project. It also mentions passing unrelated stabbing. It's plausible, but not clear if that's what he's relating to. Uh, what are referring to? Well, again, I would say, for me, just as somebody who likes to dig around a little bit, that is, once again, uh, the three millionth red flag that starts flying around about this like I would start saying well wait a minute you know that's probably a gateway let's start looking at some other stuff let's look at some other stuff he references but they move on 
we are not saying the unsourced information is incorrect, but the lack of specific uh, sources make them difficult to verify. Um, so we get to uh, <clears throat> what brings us a larger issue in Kevin Cullen's work. At his best, Cullen's writing is among the most appealing that appears in the globe. Precise, well-observed, and often standing up for the forgotten man and woman with profound effect. Reading dozens of Cullen's columns in succession give us a heightened appreciation for Cullen's humane sensibility and commitment to use his journalism for good. It's no wonder that so many of the people he's quoted over the years rush to his defense. But on, on occasion, Cullen employs journalistic tactics that unnecessarily raise questions about his accuracy, whether it's vague sourcing, referring to people by their first name, or even more... Uh, describing someone as his friend when that person is really more of an acquaintance. These techniques make the column seem more authoritative to some and make Cullen appear more intimate with his news sources, but they run the risk of misleading readers. And in stressful situations such as the aftermath of the marathon bombing, such practices may open the door to provide seriously misleading information to the public. Okay, one second, Uh, because... This was not printed. I'm going to find the other Cohen story here. Give me 30 seconds. So Kathleen Carroll, a former executive of the Associated Press, and Thomas E. Fiedler, dean of the College of Communication at Boston University. Fiedler, by the way, has had some affiliation with the Globe. They reviewed Cohen's uh, uh, broadcast um, in, 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 in writing stuff at the time. They submitted a response on May 29th. Uh, to McGrory, and it was much more uh, factual. Um, they interviewed Kevin Cullen, Jennifer Peter. As Metro editor, she edited uh, a lot of Cullen's work. Mark Morrow, who's edited Cullen's columns. Uh, I've reached out to all these people over the years, by the way. They've never gotten back to me. Uh, they talked to uh, Sean O'Brien. They talked to Boston Fire Commissioner. Um, and they and they do, I think, a pretty fair job Um <clears throat> they, they, the, the Cullen, you know, essentially tries to make himself an eyewitness at these events. Uh, they don't think he this finds support the allegation he intended to mislead readers, but they do say his writing style, crafting scenes that that lead you to believe that. Uh, the media interviews, um, they talk about that as well. They talk about the stories here. Let me just get to the. Uh, I'm going through this here live because it wasn't printed out. You know, here there's a panelist in the uh, the mass journalism. Uh, Scene, which is another another crazy Cullen story. Here you go. This is at the uh, Mass uh, the, the Association for Education and Journalism and Mass Communication, August 2013. Good, I wanted to read this. Detailed details on the counter on the night of the bombing with then-Deputy Fire Chief Joe Finn outside of a pub. One account was contained in an essay written for a book titled Our Boston. The other was in presentation by Mr. Cullen during this panel. Uh, he says, I particularly knew Sean O'Brien. He said that. I particularly knew Sean O'Brien, he says, in August 2013. He's a friend of mine. After writing the column, I stopped off at the pub in Dorchester as I was waiting. Deputy Fire Chief Joe Finn, a great fireman, grabbed me. He had his iPhone. He said, this is Sean, Sean O'Brien. I can't get him out of the house. And he goes, talk to him. I go, what are you talking about? I go, Sean, it's Kevin. Why don't you come out? Come out and have a drink with me. I don't even know what I'm talking about. He says, no, I don't want to come out. I don't want to come out. And I said, okay, well, I'll see you later. And I said to Joe, it was Sean at the scene? He said, yeah, Sean found the kid. And that's when I found the boy had died. So, you know. As O'Brien said to me, he didn't never had those conversations with him. He didn't know him. Uh, he definitely didn't talk to him the night of it. And he talks about, uh, <clears throat> in, in the book he wrote for our boss, and he tells a story again, a different part of the phone conversation. He sees Joe Finn. He's trying to get Sean O'Brien to come out. 
Uh, he said he knew Sean. What happened to him? He said that's when I first learned of Martin Richard and his family. Um, these events are problematic, the, the, these two write, uh, for several reasons, including the question of whether the situation occurred. In separate interviews with the Globe editors for the report, neither Chief Finn nor Lieutenant O'Brien recall talking to each other by phone that night. They said it's possible. The chief said he recalls checking with a number of firefighters. Chief Finn said that if he did call O'Brien, it was unlikely to be inviting him to the pub for a drink because Chief Finn said he'd seen Lieutenant O'Brien earlier that night in another pub and firefighter hangout, J.J. O'Foley's, where he told him to go home. Lieutenant O'Brien said he recalled having a beer with Chief Finn and another firefighter at the pub, adding, I don't know what I was doing, and they said, you got to go home and see your wife. Another concern raised by Mr. Cullen's accounts in these two situations and elsewhere is a familiarity that Cullen uses describing his relationship with Lieutenant O'Brien. This is most evident uh, in the narrative Mr. Cullen delivered uh, at that panel. It was also featured in the April 16th interview of the Irish radio program. He calls him my pal, Sean O'Brien. Lieutenant O'Brien disputes a scene that Mr. Cullen... Uh, oh, Mr. Uh, Lieutenant O'Brien first says uh, he told Globe editors in 2018 interviews that he did not meet Mr. O'Cullen until the night after the bombing. So they were not great friends before. That's when Mr. O'Cullen went to the fire station to interview those firefighters who had been on duty before for a follow-up call. And prior to that meeting, Lieutenant said he wouldn't have considered been considered a good friend at all. Lieutenant O'Brien also disputed uh, a scene that Mr. Cullen described in our Boston. We wrote that Sean told me he saw young Martin Richards' body, and he told him, I knew Marty was gone. Lieutenant O'Brien told the Globe editors he didn't identify the boy's body at the time and didn't recall saying those words to anyone. He added the boy was always known as Martin to everyone. No one referred to him as Marty. Just just Cullen. That's Kirk Minahan, not Sean O'Brien. Just Cullen. Cullen calls him Marty and Janie. Um... They talk about big and Bill Richards stuff wrong. Uh, talk about getting the firefighter uh, Marine stuff wrong. Uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, Colin quotes an unnamed firefighter saying he came upon the Richard body and said, I knew Marty was gone. That firefighter was identified as O'Brien, although as a note above, he denies a statement. The column also recounts the actions of another firefighter identified only as a former Marine who comes upon the scene and finds two kids with missing limbs bleeding badly. According to the columnist's account, the firefighter's attempts to... Uh, uh, to save one boy's leg were difficult because the bleeding made the uh, tubing slippery. One of the firefighters interviewed by Mr. Cullen was a former Marine named Ben Upton. Mr. Upton said in the 2018 interview that he did not transport any children with missing limbs that day. Mr. Kelly, the firefighter union official who arranged the firehouse interview, said the other former Marine who was present was Thomas Hughes. Mr. Hughes did not return calls seeking an interview about his activities the day of the bombing. Um, in our interview with Mr. Cullen, in May of 2018. So these two got to do what I didn't do, um, which is talk to Cullen. And I've tried to talk to Cullen. And um, just to be clear, I reached out to Kevin a couple of days ago, told him I was going to do a podcast this week um, about the whole thing, the anniversary. I wanted to talk to him, have, have him come in, answer all the questions, give his account. If he has anything he wants to say, say it. If he doesn't want to come on, that's fine. But I felt I owed that to him, uh, given I'm going to do it, and I wanted to hear his reaction to it. Didn't respond. So uh, Colin did sit down with uh, with the AP writer and uh, the dean from BU who did the full investigation of Colin. The interview in May of 2018. They first asked him, or they asked him about the, I can smell Patriot's Day, I can taste it, I can see it. In our interview with Mr. Colin in May 2018, he dismissed the criticism as malicious misrepresentation and repeatedly said on numerous occasions he was about a mile away from the marathon finish line when the blast occurred and couldn't get to the scene until days later. Of course, he said he could hear it in another interview at one point, but that's okay. He said, quote, my writing device was to personalize it, end quote, by drawing on senses of taste, smell, sight, sound, touch, and add another of, quote, grief. 
Managing editor Jennifer Peter told us in a separate interview she'd asked Mr. Cohen to write the anniversary column, and when she when he filed it, she said she liked it so much that she recommended it for the front page. These people. She said in editing the column, I knew he wasn't there. It didn't occur to me that readers may have misled into thinking that he was. I'll just read this one more time. Uh, I can smell Patriot's Day 2013. The smell reminded me of Boylston Street five years ago. I can hear it. I can taste it when I'm around the campfire. I can see it. So Jennifer Peter, who's in charge of, I guess, a pretty significant role at the Globe. I've reached out to her several times and last year never responded. Read, I can smell Patriot's Day. I can hear it. The smell reminded me of Boylston Street, and it never crossed her mind ever that a reader might come to the conclusion that Kevin Cullen was claiming to be there? Absolute madness. Total madness. Or bullshit. One or the other. Um, Globe Sunday editor Mark Morrow, who also read the column, agreed that a reader unfamiliar with Mr. Cullen's style could infer from some passages he was at the scene and witnessed the frantic life-saving work going on in the medical tent. Um, <clears throat> we believe this ambiguity. This is the, the, the report could have easily been avoided by deftly adding clarifying language. Do audiences believe the reporting? The Globe standards are strong and clear, they write. Kevin Cullen failed to live up to those standards a number of times when he was writing and talking about the 2013 marathon bombing. In some cases, his Globe editors failed as well and are equally culpable. Still, we believe Mr. Cullen must bear the burden of his mishaps. Here's why. Uh, There is no question the day of the bombing and the week of the manhunt were intense ones for Cullen and for the Globe newsroom, they say. Um, despite best efforts, mistakes will happen from time to time. Uh, that did not happen in the case of the erroneous tale of Martin Richard hugging his father at the marathon finish line shortly before the first bomb detonated. It's been five years since a mistake was printed and five years since Mr. Cohen learned of it. To this day, this mistake has not been corrected. That was a year ago. And to this day, to my knowledge, uh, I believe the story is still up. It was up yesterday on the Globe website, the five-year anniversary story. Uncorrected, no explanation. We found the explanations for this, they write, baffling and troubling. Failure to correct an error that has come to light can appear willful as if the newspaper is trying to hide the error. Uh, Mr. Cullen thought he was told he would be handled in the the main news story on Tuesday, April 16th, but he never checked. That mistake was his. Uh, Five years later, the managing editor cannot explain why the error has never been corrected. Uh, Mr. Cullen repeated the erroneous story several times in broadcast interviews after the bombing. Once he learned it was wrong, he did alert one interviewer that did not enter the story, but he did not go back to correct himself with any of the news organizations that interviewed him that day. That raised the possibility the future airing of the interview would would, would continue the error. Now, remember, you're you're representing the Boston Globe in these interviews. You're not Kevin Cullen from, you know, fucking Hingham or from Dorchester or from the pub. You're Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe. You're representing the Globe. So it's just, to me, when you go on these interviews, what you're saying in these interviews is the same as what you write. Uh, Mr. Cullen also told several interviewers emotional stories that day about one or more firefighters who were psychologically struggling with what they had experienced at the bombing. The stories varied, and Mr. Cullen sometimes injected himself into the narrative, saying he was talking to or going to visit one firefighter about whom he said he was particularly concerned. It is not possible to corroborate these stories. Mr. Cullen says he does not remember whom he was talking about. (laughs) And these two write, it strains credulity, uh, that on one of the most searing days of his professional life, he had deeply emotional conversations with someone he cared about, but now does not remember who it was. What they're saying is he's, he's bullshitting. It's also clear that one thing he told some interviewers, he was talking to a fighter fighter named Sean, cannot be true. Sean O'Brien is certain he did not talk with Mr. Cullen that Monday night and is just as certain he did not meet Mr. Cullen until late the next day, Tuesday, apparently for the first time. 
Mr. Cohen's writing tends to be sentimental, particularly those columns about firefighters, military veterans, and Irish or Irish-American characters around the city. He frequently includes source, sources and scenes he witnessed or events he's part of. Uh, in his columns that we've sampled are not part of the marathon bombing coverage. Mr. Cohen featured people who are named and richly described. The columns about the bombing, however, particularly about those in 2013, then the anniversary column, lacked that clarity. This is Mr. Cohen's failing, but there's also the failing of the editors who handled these pieces. Uh, <clears throat> so, yeah, and they get to these stories, you know. Um, it is clear from the interviews of the firefighters that Mr. Cohen has uh, cited, this is the episode uh, uh, about the uh, the most troubling episode, to make a Mr. Cohen's long dramatic tale till four months after the intensity of the bombing week to an audience of journalism educators. That's about, you know, the whole story about... The leg and the deputy fire chief handling. Uh, oh, I'm sorry about Mr. About the about the deputy chief handing Cohen his cell phone the night of the bombing and urging him to help persuade the troubled firefighter on the other end to leave his home and and come join them for a drink. It is clear from interviews with the firefighters, Mr. Cohen decided this episode simply did not happen. Mr. Cohen's answer to our questions about it, he does not remember telling that story it doesn't change the fact that he did, as the C-SPAN video attests. The fact that Mr. Cohen himself did not seek and review that video raised questions about how seriously he takes the inevitable conclusion that the story he told is a complete fabrication. It's not the conclusion they reached easily, they said, but it's where the facts lead us. He told the story in August of 2013. Um... And they just don't believe him. And they came up with that report. And I thought they did a pretty good job. You know, it's a little too soft for me, but they did a good job, those two. They investigated Carol and Fiedler and came back with that. The Globe, internal Globe one is so embarrassing. It's not even, I'd be so embarrassed to publish that. If I was McGorry, I'd have fired all three of those guys and just thrown that paper in their face. But McGorry and the Globe wanted that report. They picked the people who they knew would hand them that report. Um, The independent one, well, they got semi-independent one. They got some things they didn't want to hear. To me, fireable offenses, like, we're done, we're moving on, no one's ever going to trust you again. Uh, the Globe elected not to do that. Um, so in June of 2018, on a Friday night, the Globe suspended Kevin Cullen for three months without pay on Friday after a review. Found this from the New York Times. Found fabricated details, inconsistencies. He made in radio interviews and the public appearances about the Boston Marathon bombings. Our review led us to a conclusion that Mr. Cohen damaged his credibility. John W. Henry, the Globe publisher, and Brian McGorry wrote in a statement. He was barred from uh, giving outside broadcast interviews for six months, after which his appearances will face heightened editorial scrutiny. Um, he was first a reporter again for a few months, and now he's writing a column again. Uh, Cullen was reached by email. He declined to comment. In their statement, Mr. Henry and McGorry said Mr. Cullen acknowledges failures in an earlier email. I own what I did, Cullen had written. I accept responsibilities for those shortcomings, and I'm sorry there's allowed some to attack the globe itself. Now, of course, Cullen's issue is not, and he, and he can't even help himself. It's about the attacks on the globe, and it's about the show, the old show, me and Curtis and Jerry and the guys on the old show, um, the work we did. Now, I think, and I still feel, that John W. Henry and Linda Pizzuti and Brian McGorry owe us a debt of thanks. We've made them a better newspaper. We've made them correct things and take a look at somebody. They don't feel that way. Um, is, it, is it arrogance? I think so. Is it that they don't want to believe things are true? Sure. I mean, they're happy when we, when my old radio station would do things, they'd be happy to, to attack us. When they make mistakes and we attack them, then it becomes a bigger issue. So I don't know. Um, they look forward to defending him in arbitration, the lawyer said, Scott Steves, um, president of the union, the Boston Newspapers Guild, that, the Newspaper Guild. I'm not sure that's happened. Uh, and Kathleen Carroll and Thomas E. Fiedler, we read their their uh, independent review. Um, 
<clears throat> it's it's an interesting interesting story. It really is. Uh, I, I can't. Um, I can't. I can't quite get past the fact that it's now a year later, um, and Kevin Cullen is writing. <laughs> you know, I'm not on the radio anymore, which is fine, but whatever. Kevin Cullen is, is a columnist again for the Globe, writing things, and I have no idea. You know, every once in a while, because obviously I don't get the Globe, I don't read the Globe. Every once in a while, somebody will send me on Twitter a Cullen column. And I'll look at it and I'll say, oh, geez, you know, that's interesting. And my philosophy was always guys are what they are. You know, Stephen Glass is what he is, Jason Blair, Mike Barnacle, Kevin Cullen. You know, I'm, I, I we reviewed Cullen's columns and had questions about ones for years before that, uh, once we started looking at it. <clears throat> um, so when I see uh, a story like I saw from Kevin Cullen, somebody tweeted at me last week, I want to say. Um, Tommy Quinn was born to be a cop was Cullen's story and it was about a, a, an officer who had died uh, of, of cancer um, and you know and Cullen may have known him his whole life I have no idea but again it was full of the classic you know oh I've known Tommy Quinn forever we grew up together in Malden he was a good guy he was a good cop he was a one good cop and, and I'm, I feel sympathy obviously I feel terrible that this man passed away but Colin, once again, is jumping in the world of putting himself in the middle of stories. And I knew this cop. And I knew this guy. And that may all be 100% true. Absolutely maybe 100% true. I have no idea. But I also feel almost as confident that it wasn't, very, it wasn't fact-checked at the Globe. Nobody made any phone calls. Nobody did this. Nobody did that. That it just keeps rolling on like it used to there. And my guess is nothing has changed. And I also guess it's a prediction that, you know, a year from now, 18 months, two years, this will happen again to Kevin Cullen. This is what he does. There's going to be another story that he wants to be interesting, or there's going to be nothing going on on a Tuesday in March or in September or whatever. It's just boring. And he's like, you know what? It'll be interesting if I told this story. I heard this story once. It's pretty good. And I'm going to tell my, I'm going to add this to this story. And people are going to be, I think, be watching. And I wonder what will happen next time. And I wonder what will happen if uh, an independent person finds it who's not related to somebody the Globe has a difficult relationship with. Will the Globe be more forthcoming? Would the Globe be willing to have a conversation about it? Or would they continue to, to bury it, try and hide it like they've done with this and other stuff, and make it go away? Because right now they're as powerful as they've ever been, I think. As while newspapers become less irrelevant, they've managed to have a stranglehold and, and really use fear and intimidation on people. And for some people it works. But Kevin, Kevin Cullen keeps writing. He'll probably have a column tomorrow in the Globe. Uh, and maybe I should start reading him again and paying attention to him. Maybe you should too. So that's sort of the, the, the Cullen-versary. Um, I just find it such an interesting story. And, and, and it continues to happen all over the country and the world. And it's amazing to me that the Globe is willing to damage the reputation of their paper in sort of a way, and I think it's to thumb their nose and say, we're not going to let another side win. And by doing so, you make your paper worse to win some weird pissing contest. But that's what they've done. And Kevin Cullen continues to write for the Globe. And you should definitely read them if you have a newspaper in front of you. Don't buy it. But if you have a paper in front of you, read them and ask questions. That's all I ask anybody to do. That's what we've done and I continue to do. Just ask questions. I'm not saying that something is true, something is not true. Uh, but you have to doubt. 
And when you read his work, and I've gone the past and read a lot of it, and I have questions, and I'm going to continue to dig. You really have to have your doubts. If you read that with your eyes closed, you're a fucking fool. That's all I would say. It is odd to me that, and I just, I thought I actually went back in the office and thought of this. It's odd to me that Cullen has never written, the Globe didn't say when you come back, either write an apology or tell us your side of the story. A, people would actually read it for the first time. I mean, no one's ever really read Kevin Cullen, which is, of course, one of the things that, you know, makes the story so interesting is I'm obsessing over something that we reads. Um, and secondly, it's kind of part of your job as a journalist, I think, is to at least have the conversation about this. I mean, you, you demand accountability from government officials, whomever you want, all the time, and then you fail to have some accountability. And by the way, his Twitter account, which I never followed him, is protected. So you're a public, public official, you're a journalist, and you will not have a conversation or you won't have allow attacks or debate with people. It's just, it's to me, nutty. And that's like a totally half-assed thought that was in my brain, and I, it pissed me off if I didn't get to say it, so we'll just add it to the end if Moroso's listening. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, so, I mean, I just, you know, I don't know, you know, why I did it or why I didn't do it or whatever column, you know, should have been written, and I can't believe that he didn't want to do that, uh, and I can't believe that the Globe wouldn't want him to write that, if only that it would, you know, get read and people would actually talk about it. I mean, the only time I was ever talked about Kevin Cullen column is one that, you know, the, the fucking one that we called him out for. So that's it for Enough About Me. Happy anniversary to everybody. Um, I think this could potentially be a really interesting week here at the podcast. I am really interested to see where this week goes. Uh, a potential really, inter- really good interview coming up tomorrow. Couple of good ones, uh, and then we're working on something that's 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 been uh, eye opening. Um, uh, so hopefully we can get that report to you uh, later on this week. All right, that's it. That's enough about me. Uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.